1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. As Americans gather for Thanksgiving this week, we may assume that we're continuing an unbroken chain of tradition that traces directly back to the Pilgrims in 1620. In fact, many of our most cherished Thanksgiving traditions are far more recent, and some are at odds with the historical record. When you examine various American traditions through the eyes of a historian and cultural critic, the gap between myth and fact can be vast but that gap is instructive in revealing what Americans believe about ourselves. This is what Jack David Eller contends in his new book, Inventing American Tradition, From the Mayflower to Cinco de Mayo, new this month from Reaction Books. I asked Eller how fact-checking history helps show what we think it means to be American. Joining me now is Jack David Eller, author of Inventing American Tradition. David, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Uh, My
0: great pleasure to be with you this morning.
1: So you're an anthropologist. You've done various works on uh, American anthropology, cultural anthropology. Um, explain how you set your sights on Thanksgiving and other American traditions.
0: Well, when I was teaching my introductory cultural anthropology class, I would use American traditions as you know examples of cultural change processes. So I had researched Thanksgiving. I would usually do Thanksgiving in the fall, and sometimes Easter in the spring. Um, And began to realize there was a whole set of stories there um, that Americans really don't know and that not only are kind of amusing and entertaining, but really shed some interesting light on American culture and history.
1: Did you find your students were generally quite surprised uh, to learn these, to learn about these stories? uh,
0: Most definitely. They were surprised how recently... Uh, a lot of these traditions had had begun, and then how much they had changed over time, and really how much disagreement there has been, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, continues to be about you know fairly cherished American traditions.
1: Yeah, it was continually striking going through this book to say, well, it's only this old; it's not as old as as you think. <laughs> um, so, as we gather for Thanksgiving this week, we we think that we're continuing the tradition uh, that was started when the Pilgrims. Uh, All gathered on Thanksgiving, the fourth Thursday of November in 1620, and ate turkey, and uh, that it's been an American holiday ever since. And almost none of that is true or fully true. Uh, So let's start with the Mayflower. You point out, uh, you ask, who was on the Mayflower? It wasn't all pious pilgrims looking for uh, looking to practice their religion freely. Who else was on the Mayflower? Well,
0: about half of the crew, I guess, or the passengers were, you know, pilgrims, quote unquote, that is kind of extremist Protestants who just couldn't get along in, you know, more kind of religiously plural Europe. So they were just escaping from that. And the rest of them were fortune seekers, um, servants. There were a few indentured servants. Uh, And the entire project, as I mentioned in the book, was actually financed by a company, the Plymouth Company in England, that was not at all interested in religious freedom. They were interested in making money. And so they were just looking to hire a bunch of um, settlers who would go to America and start a little business colony and make money for the company.
1: And if they had intended to start a major cultural festival uh, on Thanksgiving, you point out that the last people who would have celebrated it uh, on a regular or um, substantial basis would have been the pilgrims because they were opposed to uh, big cultural celebrations like that. They even opposed Christmas for a while. So they wouldn't have been on board with the plan as, as we've carried it out uh, in modern times.
0: No, one, giving thanks was a fairly common thing, so they weren't, didn't think they were doing anything particularly special that day. Uh, and as you say, not only kind of cultural celebrations, but especially religious kind of things like this kind of compelling God on the same day every year would have been verging on blasphemous to them.
1: So there is a record of a harvest festival that took place in 1620, uh, I believe in Plymouth. Um, what is this record? What do we know about what happened and, and what didn't happen?
0: Well, we know fairly little. We know that there there was a thankful day, and again, it was a fairly common thing, not only for pilgrims, but Christians in general, to declare days of thanks, whether it was a, a saint's day, or, you know, success in a battle, or you know, almost anything that they could be thankful for. And obviously, in this case, they were thankful that about half of them <laughs> had survived the winter. Um, and so they had a rather typical, you know, kind of harvest festival. Most Farming cultures do have some kind of end of the fall festival when, you know, the food is finally available. Um, We have some sense of what they might have eaten based on what was available at the time. So they probably ate some fowl of various kinds, probably also a lot of seafood, obviously on the Massachusetts coast. Uh, Things they would not have eaten would include potatoes because there were no potatoes in North America. Uh, Any kind of pies because they had no sugar and they used up all their flour any kind of dairy because they brought no cows with them. No apples because there were no apples indigenous to North America. So, and of course (laughs) you might've noticed last week or so, uh, the woman who invented the green bean casserole died and she had only invented it like in the fifties or sixties. So there were no green bean casseroles obviously at the first Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, I've eaten that and thought that that was what the pilgrims did 400 years ago. But that that's pretty recent in itself. And there was no turkey, or probably not turkey, uh, when they they talk about eating fowl and deer. Uh, was there turkey? Mm-hmm.
0: There may have been some turkey because turkeys were indigenous to the continent. But they probably it would would have also eaten goose and duck, deer, as I mentioned, things like that. But turkey was not the centerpiece by any means whatsoever. That was invented probably 200 years later.
1: And so then you trace how their are various days of Thanksgiving for various purposes that occur throughout American history uh, being declared on days that include June 30, February 19, January 12, May 9, all over the place. Uh, The date gets settled much later. Um, But you write that as Thanksgiving and the proclamation of, of an American Thanksgiving by the president, which I believe first happened... Well, I should say George Washington declared one, right? And then Abraham Lincoln settled it later. But it wasn't connected to, the, at least explicitly, to the settlement uh, at Plymouth and the celebration in 1620.
0: Well, most definitely. Yeah, the um, declarations, the proclamations by Washington and Adams had nothing to do with the Pilgrims whatsoever. They were usually days um, about, you know, again, battles that had been won, usually, um, and even uh, Lincoln's proclamation in 16, you know, 1863 never mentions the pilgrims specifically. That's obviously about, first of all, it was about, I don't know if we want to talk about Sarah Josepha Hale and her role in all of this, but it was roughly just to uh, declare a day when the, the Americans, which we mean you know, the Union Americans, the Northern Americans, could kind of come together it, right in the middle, the heat of the Civil War, but at no point does it reference the pilgrims.
1: And there was even, you write about, some hostility or suspicion to celebrating Thanksgiving uh, outside New England uh, because it, it was a regional practice and other regions didn't want to adopt what they saw as a New England practice. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, Thanksgiving, as we know it, was a uh, New England a Massachusetts a regional tradition, and other states had either their own traditions or nothing at all in that regard. Um, and obviously during the Civil War, the South you know, washed their hands of it completely. That was a Yankee tradition. With which they had nothing to
1: do at all. So in 1905, the first explicit connection to the settlement at Plymouth. Uh, is made in a presidential proclamation, not until the 20th century. That's where my jaw dropped. And you write that there were two strands of history that eventually got tied together. One is some sort of harvest festival that did occur in 1620, and the other is this sense of a national American holiday um, as established in presidential proclamations. And the two ended up uh, merging in the 20th century. Can you explain how that happened?
0: Well, that's kind of a story that emerges, I think throughout the traditions uh that I discuss in the book, and this was kind of a surprise to me because I kind of imagined the book at first to be this kind of light, amusing study of American traditions and I began to notice that what what you know I and what we social scientists call traditioning was happening a lot in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds um and that had a lot to do with of course, the trauma of the civil war that had just occurred. And then the perceived threats to American identity and unity um, through immigration and the supposed, you know, threat of the working class and socialism. And so there would begin this real kind of, uh, you know, energy, this machine to create American traditions, to pull people together. Um, so we see that especially in this Thanksgiving, as you say, this kind of these two strands coming together, um, both creating this kind of, you know, unified American activity and celebrating american identity and hearkening back to a kind of a romanticized to say it you know kindly um memory of you know the very earliest days of europeans on american soil and trying to then connect that as if there's some continuous you know unbroken line between between what happened in the early 1600s and the, in the early 1900s
1: So you have a fascinating quote on this. Uh, Let me read it. Quote, as the true epitome of an invented tradition, Thanksgiving emerged out of colonial practices, took on many forms, adapted to each historical moment, and eventually wrapped back around itself to link the present with a selected and imagined moment in the past. And as you just said, there's also this conflicted feeling about the fact that when we celebrate the Plymouth settlers in any respect... um, what we're celebrating is is something that ended up displacing Native populations on this continent. And you even refer to Thanksgiving as, quote, a collective conscience washing. And so, as you say, this invented tradition helps uh, forge a sense of unity. Uh, but with this very deeply conflicted um, reality that uh, we're also talking about massive displacement and oppression of, of Native peoples and, and throughout American history of, of other minorities.
0: Absolutely. Not only is it a, a day of national unity, but it, as you think the the past, but it also, you know, creates this idea of a benevolent American past that, you know, the the pilgrims and the Indians were hugging each other and, you know, so happy to be, you know, living together. And and so to, to over, overlook and kind of, you know, forget the displacement. But we forget that it was only a few years after, you know, this first Thanksgiving, that literally wars broke out between the colonists and the Indians. And so any kind of you know um, uh, benevolent feelings you know between those two groups ended very quickly, and we tend to, as you say, skip over all of that. So we connect 1620 and any happy moments to the present, which you know serves fine for mainstream you know white American memory. But as I mentioned at the end of the book, there are other people in America who do not remember Thanksgiving uh, anywhere nearly as pleasantly.
1: And this is true in many of the uh, patriotic traditions that you also trace, and let's talk about some of them. Um, The National Anthem, for instance, the National Anthem that was played and used in George Washington's inauguration uh, was not the Star-Spangled Banner, which had not been written yet, but was a song called Hail Columbia. Uh, Columbia being the name for America as it was assumed to have been discovered by Columbus, although, as you say, when you talk about Columbus Day, Columbus had never set foot On what became the United States. Um, So tell us about how Hail Columbia uh, was for a long time a viable contender to be our national anthem.
0: Certainly. Well, of course, you know, the um, Constitution specifies no anthem, (laughs) and America got along for, you know, many decades without an anthem. Uh, Hail Columbia was written specifically for Washington and wasn't intended to be an anthem. It was more uh, sort of a fanfare. Uh, for the president. And interestingly, is still used today as sort of the fanfare for the vice president, uh, equivalent to hail to the chief for the president. Uh, and Columbia, yeah, was a, a common name for America. And um, I don't know if we have time to talk about Uncle Sam today, but as I mentioned in the book, Columbia was also a a, a pictured character, a woman uh, who was often used to personify and, and visualize America. Um, and it was only many years later that a poem that was set to uh, a british song gradually became the national anthem
1: Well, let's talk about that anthem and then let's talk about uh, Uncle Sam. One thing I didn't know, I knew that Francis Scott Key wrote it uh, during the War of 1812. I didn't know that he was on a British ship during the attack on Fort McHenry. You write that he was admitted onto the ship to help negotiate or attempt to negotiate the release of an American prisoner. And he was watching this uh, while being detained by the British while this uh, played out. Um, tell us more about uh, what he did and, and uh, how this how this experience led to uh, this text that became the words of our anthem.
0: Sure. Uh, well, Key was a, a, a prominent citizen of Baltimore, and he was selected to, as you say, negotiate with the British for the release of a, another prominent citizen. So he happened to be aboard a ship in the Baltimore Harbor um, and was told that he wouldn't be able to get off at the moment because they were going to start the attack on the really impregnable fort. Uh, in Baltimore Harbor, Fort McHenry, uh, and this bombardment went on for about 24 hours, as we, you know, well know from the song. It, it was unsuccessful, but Key was unable to to leave, so he was a spectator um, from the British side as this bombardment went on. A- and the myth goes, at least, that you know, in the morning when the fort was still standing and the flag was still flying, he pulled out a piece of paper and wrote down some verses of a poem, uh, which has no title. It's not called the Star-Spangled Banner, Um, but there is a notation that it would be sung to the tune of, uh, to an acreon on heaven, in heaven rather, which is a famous, and was really quite well known at the time, British um, social, some say even kind of drinking song.
1: Yeah, so we've got... um... A battle with the British and the tune of a a British drinking song. Um, It's interesting that as the debate played out, as you trace it over what should the national anthem be, some of the skepticism or the reluctance to christen this song as the anthem is that the events were rather obscure, that the War of 1812 shouldn't rise to the occasion of being the event about which a national anthem is written. Um, And there's also concerns raised about its musical qualities, uh, how singable uh, it is, uh, both its words and its tune. Um, and so this this was not an easy course for, for this anthem to, to be adopted a, eventually as our national anthem.
0: No, it was quite a contentious thing. It was, in fact, it was many decades after the words were set to music uh, that it finally began to get some traction. In fact, quite possibly really, again, you know, very, very early 1900s, um, there were many other contenders. In fact, there were actually contests held to try to create a national anthem, and nothing else seemed to stick. Um, Hell, Columbia was still a viable candidate throughout most of the 1800s. Um, and as you say, there were people who thought that, first of all, uh, a British drinking song was not suitable. We should have our own American melody. And many other um versus lyrics had been set to those same uh, that same music so it was hardly a unique thing in fact key himself had written verses before the star spangled banner that he'd recommended to set to that same tune um many people thought as you say it was too obscure i mean most americans still today don't know actually what the song is about that it's about that particular battle in that particular war most americans know little about that war honestly uh, many thought that it was just too military a song just too warlike Uh, And others, and as we see today when people perform the song, the range of notes is really high, uh, high. of several octaves uh, of music, and then the the lyrics are very unusual. Most people don't realize that the first four lines of the first verse are all one long question. You know, oh, say, can you see? And then all these things, can you see? Um, So the grammar is just very strange, and and people actually don't even kind of recognize it. They just memorize random words rather than actually understanding what, what they're singing about. (laughs)
1: Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and you tie this back, as with all of these traditions, we talked about this this conflicted conscience of America that's lying beneath the surface of all these traditions and it's definitely come to the fore in recent years when we have NFL players and other athletes kneeling during the anthem to protest police brutality in this country um, and the rebuke that they get, including from the president, is that they are protesting the anthem and they're they're careful to clarify that no, they're, they're protesting police brutality, uh, but it Shows how high the stakes are in terms uh, for for many in terms of maintaining this tradition and what and what critics see as as a slight to it.
0: Yes, in fact, as I mentioned in the book, Americans have never been particularly pious toward their national anthem, uh, so it was used as a campaign song. You know, over the years, it was used in advertising. Protested during it long before you know the current NFL protest I mentioned, and even have a photograph in the book of the Olympics protest. Uh, you know, during the Black Power Movement, when a couple of our athletes, you know, raised their fists um, in a, you know, a very similar kind of protest to what we see today. Um, in fact, it, it, I refer to the, the, the singing, the performance of the Star Spangled Banner and other things like that as sites of memory. Um, and that's a, a common kind of social science way of thinking. And that means that people are kind of encouraged to think and remember and ponder at those moments but exactly what they think. Exactly. What they remember and feel at those moments varies tremendously. Uh, Same thing when the flag is displayed. Some people feel wonderfully patriotic, some are angry. Um, And so on those special occasions, of course, people are going to express their particular visions and values of America. Um, and those visions and values are not as unified as our traditions you know, would make us think or, or would want us to be. And some people, whether it's you know, African-Americans or Native Americans, are actually damned angry about a number of things. And that's when they express those, those feelings.
1: So do you find it as contentious as these conflicts are? Do you find it? useful to have all of us uh, sort of re-examine what is the anthem about, what are we saying, and, and what are the athletes saying when they kneel? Is that a useful exercise, as as painful as it might feel for the country?
0: Not only useful, but inevitable, I think. Not, I mean, not only can we and must we do that, but I would go a step further and say that there isn't any one thing that the anthem means or that the flag means. They are symbols that we can fill with meaning uh, and as you know, the whole point of the book is that people have, first of all, had to create the symbols, and then they filled them with meaning very differently over time. Uh, and then even today, people obviously fill them quite differently with meaning. Um, so the, the the debate is not so much about what does the the anthem or the flag really mean, as about how do different people see it and think about it, and what what does that mean for us as Americans who have to have to live together in some way.
1: Yeah. And to dwell on this for a second, there's also a sense, isn't there, um, that different groups are trying to take ownership and say, this is what it actually means. Um, And even in slogans like make America great again, what's great and what is America is defined in a certain way by a certain group. And in fact, that's all subjective and, and particular to a particular group's power and its own story. Um, but doesn't it seem problematic that that there are no absolutes, even though different groups seem to assume that their so-called ownership of a ritual or a symbol uh, is absolute?
0: Oh, it's problematic. (laughs) First, anthropologists, much less so, because we, first of all, realize that everything in culture is constructed. People have to create it, people have to, we say, contest it. Um, and that whatever people, if they if they agree on anything at all today, it's through a very long historical you know process of beating out that meaning. Uh, but as much as it's constructed, it's also very very pluralistic. That you name anything you can name, people are going to have two or more different attitudes or conclusions about it. Yeah. Um, not only over time, but it, but in the present, of course.
1: Yeah. Well, this this illustrates how you know it it may start like uh, as you said. It it seems like we're starting with sort of trivial fact checking about some of these stories and. Very, very quickly, we get into these uh, very deeply embedded themes and these these questions about uh, how a culture constitutes itself and sees itself. Let's talk about some of these other patriotic symbols that you have in your section on patriotic traditions. You mentioned Uncle Sam. uh, Columbia, uh, a female figure, was another contender to be sort of the personification of the country. Uh, And there was John Bull. Or was John Bull British. Remind me. Uh, Help me sort out those figures.
0: John Bull's British brother, Jonathan was the American equivalent. Yeah, so John Bull, there was already a tradition of depicting England as a person, John Bull. Um, And so Americans, you know, developed this character, Brother Jonathan, who was sort of the younger brother or son or something of of John Bull. And so we see very early on, even in the uh, late 1700s, depictions of a Brother Jonathan of America interacting with John Bull, and then later with Napoleon and other characters. And he was actually well-known and fairly popular on into the mid-1800s, even after the Uncle Sam character had been created. Uh, Most Americans, and this is one point I make about the book, there are also traditions that have failed, or traditions that we've forgotten, Uh, and Brother Jonathan is one of
1: those. So how did Uncle Sam triumph as, as the figure of America?
0: Well, um, there there is supposedly, again, all this stuff is steeped in mythology, but there, there seems to be a possibility that there really was a Sam. He would have been Sam Wilson, who was once again uh, a player in the War of 1812. He was a food supplier, a meat packer, and he stamped his... Um, crates with a U.S., which some people thought was, you know, actually it's an interesting side point. The idea of U.S. as an abbreviation for the United States was fairly uncommon at that time. So people didn't know if it meant United States or referred to Sam himself. And so his his employees, who called him Uncle Sam, started joking that he, this U.S. meant Uncle Sam. That was picked up and spread by newspapers and other media at the time. Um, And people thought that was kind of amusing. So they started referring to Uncle Sam and it got into especially political cartooning and interestingly, not in America first, but in Britain uh, where they were trying to make fun of America often. And so they would draw this Uncle Sam character in cartoons like in Punch magazine um, to kind of make America look like a buffoon. And especially during the Civil War. That's really when Uncle Sam begins to, if anybody thinks about what uh, Abraham Lincoln looks like, Uncle Sam begins to look more and more like Lincoln, this really tall, thin guy with a beard and you know a tall hat. Um, so it's really in cartoons, especially often anti-American cartoons, uh, that the image of Uncle Sam begins to get settled. Um, interestingly, and this was kind of a, a a surprise to me until I thought about it, um, Uncle Sam tends to represent the American government, whereas Brother Jonathan tended to represent the American people. Uh-huh. Uh, and so when we draw Uncle Sam, and we often draw him either, you know, really strong or kind of weak, you know, kind of, kind of you know, sick, uh, we tend to be referring to the government, not the people. And that's a really interesting, but, I, but real, I think, distinction.
1: True, yeah. So if, when Uncle Sam was used for war recruiting posters, it's Uncle Sam wants you, the government is calling you to serve.
0: Absolutely. So you have him talking to the people, but he's not representing the people.
1: Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the American flag. The, the one thing I thought I knew about the flag was that Betsy Ross sewed the first flag. And <laughs> that's almost certainly not the case. In fact, you say it was, this is a case where we can actually trace the source who says, it's the grandson, I believe, of Betsy Ross, who says, well, we don't know the source, so this tradition is as good as any, and uh, essentially creates a tradition by fiat. Is, is that kind of how it happened?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, absolutely. Uh, The flag resolution, which uh, specified some details about the flag very, very early in the American Revolution, was a year after the supposed Betsy Betsy Ross flag sewing. So it's almost impossible that she would have sewn the flag when we hadn't even adopted a flag at that point. also there's some record or there's some claim of uh, the constitutional or rather the, um, the continental congress sending a committee to her including george washington but george washington wasn't a member of the congress he was a general of the army so it's almost impossible he would have served on such a committee So once again you know a myth yeah it was probably a good generation later when yeah members of her own family <laughs> We're promoting this myth and saying, "Well, there's no evidence to support it, but in the absence of evidence, we can fall back on tradition, which is very circular thinking. Pro- you're trying to prove a tradition by referring to tradition, and historians really can't do that kind of thing."
1: And I was struck. You note that by the t- by the turn of the 19th century, America had. 15 states and there was some question do we have 13 stars on the flag or 15 do we have 13 stripes on the flag or 15 and and you write that the flag that francis scott key saw at fort McHenry had 13 had, no i had 15 stars but i believe 13 stripes and it's interesting to go back and think that in that moment there was the question of how changeable how fluid is is the design of this flag which we think of as iconic and and static
0: Absolutely. In fact, I actually mentioned, and this was kind of a surprise to me too, we just assume that those 13 original stars and the 13 contemporary stripes refer to the 13 colonies. But there is evidence to suggest that that's not what the founders had in mind at all, that they may have been thinking about a a constellation in the sky, specifically Lyra. Um, And so there was no idea that they would add stars as they added states because there wasn't an association between stars and states.
1: This is fascinating. So once you start peeling away these layers, you just see all sorts of this stuff uh, emerge. Let's talk about the Pledge of Allegiance. One thing that stood out to me is that there were various pledges, but you write that the one pledge that kind of stuck was written by a person who identified as a Christian socialist. And this was not unusual in the late 19th century. Uh, there was a strand of uh, socialism that was blessed and championed by progressive Christians. Uh, but the the person, uh, Bellamy, there were two brothers. One of the brothers wrote... Uh, the Pledge as we know it, Uh, he was also known for a speech called Jesus the Socialist and Socialism and the Bible. And it just jumped out to me that as we're reciting the Pledge today, do we have any idea that we're reciting the words of uh, someone who called himself a Christian Socialist?
0: Yeah, I can almost guarantee that we don't. (laughs) Um, Yeah, obviously, once again, there's no such thing as a pledge in, in the Constitution, Um, In fact, I even mentioned that pledging allegiance is kind of an unusual thing to do, not only cross-culturally, but for democracies. Uh, You know, the entire idea is that people are free to think and be and do what they want. And even America had no kind of loyalty oath until, again, that crisis moment, the Civil War. And and loyalty oaths then were mostly directed to, you know, former Southern soldiers to make sure that they were coming back into the fold. Um, And any northern sympathizers, but just ordinary garden variety Americans weren't expected to pledge their their allegiance, their loyalty, and certainly children were not.
1: Yeah, interesting. And again, to tie it back to the current moment where there's this conflict over is proper respect being paid to the national anthem and the flag at sporting events, as you say, that sort of conformity, that sort of concern about expressing loyalty like that happens in moments of conflict, of concern, when, when something is perceived to be under threat.
0: Absolutely. So the Civil War, it raises its ugly head again during the First World War, Uh, again during the Second World War, during the Cold War. Those are moments, obviously, when there literally are existential threats to the country. And so it becomes more and more important to guarantee that people, again, especially children, uh, are going to be loyal and have that, that loyalty instilled deeply, deeply within them. So it's not even the point now of questioning it. They've just been raised with it.
1: Other holidays that you write about that I've got to ask you about, Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, you trace it back to at least the early 20th century, and it's notable that the woman who can, can be attested as, as the source, as the originator of Mother's Day, came to loathe the celebration of Mother's Day by the time of her death, I believe, in the 1920s, you write. Uh, what was her problem with, uh, with how Mother's Day had developed, and uh, what would she make of Mother's Day today?
0: <laughs> uh, Anna Jarvis. Uh, supposedly picking up a practice that her own mother, Ann Jarvis, had started uh, to, you know, simply, you know, honor mothers, you know, one, one day a year. Um, Anna Jarvis ideally wanted, you know, children, including adult children, to write letters to their mothers to express their love and their appreciation. She didn't want it to become all commercial. Um, and when companies from flower companies to card companies began once again to uh, to appropriate that holiday, Uh, and to make it an occasion not to express your own, you know, self-opinions, but to give her a printed version of somebody else's opinions, a la, you know, a a greeting card. She thought that the the entire thing had simply gone off the rails, and she became the most vocal critic, uh, actually tried to to, to outlaw the holiday, but by by that point, it had gotten way out of her hands. And so she died, you know, in poverty, you know, uh, to to the last day condemning the holiday that she had been so instrumental in starting in the first place.
1: And there were similar concerns about Father's Day. Let's just not let it get too commercial. And uh, now, if you see some of the ads on TV around those holidays today, and and the uh, the Hallmark greeting card industry, um, it took a different direction than they intended.
0: Oh, sure. And, and you know, Americans these days, you know, bemoan Christmas and even Thanksgiving uh, for becoming so commercial. Uh, and I'm sure you've noticed that we've already started the you know the holiday shopping season. In fact, one thing I guess we guess we didn't mention when we talked about Thanksgiving a few minutes ago was the uh, the settling of the date has a lot to do with creating a shopping season. Um, and back in in the 30s when Roosevelt was president and the uh, depression was still on, he tried to move the holiday a week earlier um, at the behest of the National Dry Goods Association, thank you very much, uh, to create a week longer shopping season. And about half the states followed him, the democratic states, another interesting political divide, and the Republican states didn't. And so for two or three years, Uh, America was split over the date of Thanksgiving until they finally, under protest, settled back on the original date. Uh, But both Thanksgiving and Christmas and every other holiday from Veterans Day to Washington's birthday has become incredibly commercial.
1: And I'm wondering if in the next edition of your book you can add a chapter about Black Friday and what we're seeing now, I think relatively recently, is the intrusion of Black Friday into Thanksgiving itself, so some of these sales start at midnight or at 6 p.m. or I think in some cases even at noon on Thanksgiving and it's that inevitable intrusion of commercialization that as you say is is foundational to to the location of Thanksgiving on the calendar.
0: Well, absolutely and an escalation as you see, yeah, just a you know, a battle to make it earlier and earlier. Um, yeah, I didn't actually mention Black Friday, I realized later, but there, I guess there actually was something maybe as early as the 60s when people were referring to a Black Friday, but or sometimes to a Big Friday. Um, but the actual Black Friday that we know and love is much more recent. And of course, even more recent, as people know, is, you know, Cyber Monday, which just shows once again how cre- uh, t- uh, traditions keep being created. <laughs> you know, this, this ongoing process of tradition you know, has not ended and never will end.
1: Yeah, a few more holidays to ask you about. Uh you you talk about St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo and Kwanzaa as Holidays that are and traditions that are—I don't know if I should say contrived or developed by immigrant populations with an appeal to uh, to countries outside the U.S., uh, but in fact they are American originations uh, that we, in some cases, export back to the foreign countries that uh, to which they refer. Uh, explain how that worked with St. Patrick's Day. There, w- there was a feast of St. Patrick uh, in Ireland uh, dating back many centuries, uh, but. St. Patrick's Day became what it became uh, in America much more recently. How did that work?
0: Well, yeah, as you say, many of those holidays either refer back to some other country or do have a source of some sort there, but it's nothing like the tradition that actually we know and that was practiced in America. So there was, you know, for some centuries, a feast day for St. Patrick on the Catholic calendar. Uh, And I think it's really important for Americans to remember, and they forget very easily, that St. Patrick, like all saints... Um, and all this wearing of the green business is not so much an Irish tradition as an Irish Catholic tradition. Uh, green is the color of Catholics, orange is the color of Protestants. And so many Irish Protestants would not, you know, join in the revelry here at all about this green, you know, saint business. But anyhow, um, when the, in, even in the early 1800s, before the large immigration, you know, after the potato famine, um, Irish immigrants in America were celebrating uh, St. Patrick's Day as um, actually, kind of a day of assimilation to celebrate their pride in being Americans. So they would have quite sober evening indoor festivals. They would have, you know, dinners and speeches and things like that. Usually, kind of leading citizens, the upper class and businessmen, and they would display the Irish flag and the American flag, um, and they would essentially, again, you know, kind of uh, establish pro- proclaim their Americanness. It's really only in the later 1800s when the next wave of immigrants who are poorer, more Catholic and more militant, more anti-British, move in, take over this holiday from the kind of more stodgy establishment um, Irish leadership in America, uh, have outdoor parades, more raucous kinds of events, and much more, again, kind of military events with, you know, kind of rifle associations marching. Uh, much more, you know, uh, uh, stating Amer- uh, Irish pride, and Irish nationalism, both against Britain and to a certain st- extent against America.
1: And when it comes to Cinco de Mayo, how how did this emerge and, and how do you mm-hmm. determine is Cinco de Mayo American or something else or all of the above?
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I like the way you say that all of the above, ultimately. Um, no, the, the, the original uh event that it refers to the, the battle of puebla um to, to set a little context america had seized about a third of mexican territory after the mexican-american war in 1848 um as a result of that war mexico was in debt and you know europe was pretty angry at it so a number of european countries were kind of looking at mexico as you know a potential source of you know what we- well wealth and power france actually invades Mexico, trying to establish a French empire there. And so the French army is met by a Mexican, much smaller Mexican army at Puebla, and miraculously, the Mexicans win. Of course, they went on to lose the war. France did conquer Mexico and installed an emperor, a Maximilian, for a few years during the American Civil War when America really couldn't do anything about it. So anyhow there actually was a battle in mexico but it's, it's kind of like you know the original thanksgiving in in new england it was a small local affair it was not a national mexican holiday it's not mexican independence day it just so happened that the the general Zar- Zaragoza of um the mexican army was born in texas gilead texas which was already american by that time and so it's Mexican Americans, and remember, they didn't so much come to America as America came to them. Suddenly surrounding, engulfing their territory, it's Mexican Americans in Texas and Southern California who, again, kind of select this date the way Irish select St. Patrick's Day, to remember, you know, a great thing that Mexicans did, and to once again celebrate their their national identity inside America.
1: And you write about Kwanzaa. It's interesting that its roots trace back to, um, or at least are associated with the Black Power movement of the mid-20th century. And you note that kind of two strands have developed, uh, a sort of more purist strand, and then there is the corporate embrace of Kwanzaa, where uh, many corporations uh, recognize it um, and try to celebrate it to some extent. Is the attempted mainstreaming of Kwanzaa, the, the corporatization, you might say, of Kwanzaa, um, is that a bastardization, or, or, or is it a triumph uh, that, that this holiday becomes mainstream, or again, is it back to all of the above?
0: Yes. I mean, as, anthropologists, <laughs> as anthropologists, we don't get into arguments about bastardization and such. I mean, once something, whether it's a tradition or a song or anything else is put on the table, anyone can play. Yep. Um and, and so obviously those who are using it for more African nationalist identity kind of purposes are going to want to control it and do certain things with it. Those who either see it as a wonderfully multicultural thing uh, or just see it as a, you know, sales opportunity are going to think of it and use it in very different ways. And from at least from my point of view, neither one is more real, more. I guess more authentic even than the other. They're just the multiple ways that people handle culture of all sorts, tradition and otherwise.
1: Yep. Well you have chapters on Coca-Cola, a chapter on Superman, Mickey Mouse, um a chapter on blue jeans. Let me let me ask you about that because tradition does include dress, uh, artifacts and means of dress of clothing ourselves. Um you you call blue jeans I believe an individualistic American uniform uh, if I have that right. Explain what you mean by that. <laughs>
0: Well, Americans, you know, love to think of themselves as wonderfully individualistic and, you know, even iconoclastic, and yet we seem to do it, you know, in very much the same ways. So when you look at, you know, these, you know, uh, uh, spaces of individualism like college campuses or in those urban streets, look down the street and what you see is a sea of, you know, blue denim. So Americans are are individuals within very narrow ranges of conformity, (laughs) And this is kind of you know our individualistic uniform as i as I mentioned
1: well, you have a closing chapter where you kind of give some reflections, including uh, th- how there's an anti historical streak in American memory in American culture. Um, America is not particularly. Uh, It's not always captive to history. It's not always interested in history. Uh, You talk about how in the 19th century there was an attempt to tear down Independence Hall. Um, And at the same time, you've traced how America clings and develops uh, these stories and and these rituals. Um, Do you find those two things at odds, or perhaps does one lead to the other? Uh, How do you see that as an anthropologist? We are anti-historical, and yet we cling to and place a lot of investment in forming these traditions.
0: Well, I guess there, it's interesting oxymoron in one way and another. It's kind of the natural progression of a society, of a country becoming mature. Um, as I think most of your listeners will know, America, you know, if you think about the revolution, the birth of the country, was born, you know, with a future orientation. The whole point was it was a new kind of society, a new world, you know, shaking off the shackles of tradition, which largely meant European culture. Um, we were going to you know appeal to reason and not to history. So was, there's was very much a sense of looking forward not looking backward and that history is again largely you know a trap. We don't want that kind of thing. I think that and again most Americans didn't worry about any of that kind of stuff for the first few decades assuming that America would be just fine as, as individuals just pursue their you know individual rational interests. When you get those as I call them existential threats to the country like the Civil War, immigration, socialism, Americans begin to realize a country can't live without, can't, can't stay together without those kinds of things. And so America does this interesting kind of backward process. We tend to think, we social scientists, of society starting out traditional and becoming modern. If anything, America started out modern and became traditional. Hmm. Uh, in this really aggressive process of creating traditions to try to create some kind of American identity, some kind of American unity and so we see this, again, these decades between about 1880, which is when the uh, Civil War veterans are becoming, you know, older adults and starting maybe even to die. They don't want that memory of, of their, their sacrifice and their accomplishments to be lost. And about 1920, coming out of, the, out of World War I, that generation or so, really, really muscular traditioning to try to pull America together when it seems like it's just about to fall apart.
1: So that does a lot to answer my next question, but I want to ask it in these terms. Uh, Throughout this book, you're uh, witnessing this battle between myth and fact, and uh, trying to reconcile what we assume to be fact with with what history actually shows. Um, What... If as an anthropologist, what is what is the value of that exercise? Um, is it, it it's not just to say, oh, it was this date and not that date, or it wasn't Betsy Ross? Um, what are you getting at as an anthropologist when you're trying to sort out uh, what's true and what's not when it comes to myth?
0: Thank you for that question. That's actually a really important question for my discipline, and I think maybe for Americans and, and humans in general. I think the main message of anthropology and of the this kind of revelation about traditioning is that the way things are today isn't the way they always have been. We think that the flag has always been thus and so, the song, and it's always meant the same things. People have always treated them the same way, and that's not true. Every behavior, every institution, every symbol has a history, and to understand how it's come makes us realize that we can't take the present and read it back into the past. But that also means, and maybe that's kind of a sobering, even slightly depressing activity. But I think the more optimistic message from that is that we don't don't have to and we can't read the present into the future. That is, if things today aren't the way they always have been, they aren't the way they always have to be. And therefore, we can make the future differently and hopefully better than today because we created the past, we created the present, and we're going to create the future.
1: That's well stated and a timely message. Uh, and uh, again, it's it's fun to peel back the layers on these things and it starts out as a fun exercise and it, it gets us quite quickly face to face with these serious themes. Um, and you handle and bridge the uh, the transition from the trivial to the more serious. Uh, very ably and very usefully in this book. So, Jack David Eller, the book is called Inventing American Tradition. It's brand new, hot off the presses. Uh, a fascinating work here. There's and there's even more to explore. Maybe that's the, the final lesson of your book, uh, is that these traditions are are always in progress and, and who knows uh, what form and shape they'll take next and what new traditions will come along.
0: Thank you very much, Mike. Very great pleasure to share my book with you and with your audience today.
1: Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Jack David Eller is the author of Inventing American Tradition From the Mayflower to Cinco de Mayo, published this month by Reaction Books. Eller is a retired professor of anthropology at the Community College of Denver. His many books include Cultural Anthropology, Global Forces, Local Lives, and Culture and Diversity in the United States. I'm Nathan Birma. You've been listening to the New Books Network.